0: You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is a social entrepreneur and attorney who focuses on startup companies, nonprofit organizations, and arts and entertainment law issues. Creative Confidential starts now.
1: Today's guest has the job that every kid dreams about. He gets to travel the world driving fast, exotic cars. A writer, journalist, producer, and TV personality He focuses on the intersection between automobiles and lifestyle. He's hosted a show for the Travel Channel and written about cars for publications ranging from Bloomberg News to Time Magazine. He's currently a contributing editor at Road & Track Magazine. Our guest today is writer Jason Harper. Jason, thanks very much for joining us today on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Brian. Fun to be here.
1: I first started reading your work I used to re- well and still do read bloomberg dot com quite a bit, but the auto reviews and this may be going back as far as you know six seven eight years ago um, were what caught my eye, and primarily it was because your ability to you know communicate it wasn't all gear and ratios and technical stuff. You really brought and and bring into your reporting um, a, a real focus on sort of the the sensory. The experience of of what it's like to sit, in, you know, in a in a in a Porsche nine eighteen or, or or a Ferrari or or what have you. Um, tell us a little bit about um, you know what you're working on currently, and we'll we'll sort of unpack all of that as we as we go forward.
0: All right, thanks, Brian. Yeah, I've always been a car guy, but um, and I've always been given extraordinary opportunities to drive amazing cars, but. In my viewpoint, a car is only as interesting as the person who's in it or the place where you're driving. And so I've always focused on this intersection between the actual people inside the car and how it feels in a visceral way rather than, you know, simply the engineering or the mechanics. Um, And that's kind of been my through line through my entire career. And um, I started as a writer, very much so. And uh, I still think what's most fun about a car is sharing that experience. Um, Started as a straight-up journalist and have moved on. And these days, as the industry has changed, um, I'm sure, as you're well aware, there's less Money in places like magazines or um, online even that um, we've been pushed ever further towards video and telling these same uh, stories through video and video that doesn't necessarily look like, you know, the video we've seen in car commercials for the last 30 years, which are, you know, sort of that classic, you know. Come down this weekend and see, you know, so-and-so on Crazy Frank at his showroom. (laughs) Um, So I've created a company called Driving Pants Productions, and the idea there is simply to storytell through video um, the same things I used to tell through just my writing, but to offer that visceral excitement about driving a car, what makes it so cool, and actually being inside a Ferrari or being inside a Bentley um, versus just that sort of you know, just seeing it from the outside and being just a always the outsider. My idea is to put the people inside the car a little bit and give you some of that feeling through video of what that's like.
1: I, I think that's so important to have that other dimension to what you do. In that, you can only read about gear ratios and torque and horsepower so much. <laughs> you know, it only you can only see that so many times and and not start kind of. Just getting your, you know, your eyes glazed over, or at least, at least, mine do. Um, Me too.
0: I feel the same way. It doesn't mean anything in a practical world, you know. I mean, zero to sixty in four point seven seconds means mm, pretty much nothing to most of us. And the fact is, even if anybody drives these cars a lot, that isn't actually how you quantify them. I found that you know, after a great, you're in an amazing car, and you're talking to your buddies. You know, I never say, "Wow, I went four point three seconds." To sixty miles an hour today—that's just not how we actually talk about cars. So I always wonder why we communicate them to our readership or our viewership that way. Doesn't actually make a lot of sense.
1: I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I, you know, I'm a I'm a car person or a car guy as much as the next person. Um, but your you know your reviews, I've always kept an eye out for. You know, if I saw a piece of yours. You know, I would be sure you were like one of the few people that when I see your name on the byline, I just click through because I know it's gonna be interesting.
0: Well, one of the nice things I often get is uh a lot of I used especially when I was at Bloomberg, um, I've always liked to reach out to readership who aren't the traditional car reader, right? People that don't self identify as a car guy or car girl. And um Often people say, Oh, you know, I love reading your, your work, even though I don't like cars. Um, and I feel like that is any type of successful writer or journalist, um, Whether you're reporting on music, you know, you you could read a great something and say, wow, I don't really like country music, but boy, it's fun to read about, you know, country music through this person's eyes or, or architecture, you know, things like sometimes in the New Yorker, where you read that 8,000 word story about something you previously had no interest in, but they were able to sort of identify the things that make sense to you and bring that into a different arena.
1: Now, we can spend some time talking about sort of the evolution of media or the evolution of writing. I know that, you know, if you go back in time to when, you know, let's let's pick a time like, for example, when, when Blogger became a platform that a lot of people used, all of a sudden, everybody that could, you know, put two sentences together – had a blog and all of a sudden there was more there was more content than anybody could consume and it became very tough i think to and this would have been what the late late 90s mid late
0: 90s early 2000s sure
1: where you know it used to be it you know i'm almost becoming a fan again of you know it was maybe it wasn't a bad thing to have all those those few gatekeepers at the traditional <laughs> old outlets because there was some assurance that you know what would come out of the New York Times was good, or what what reporting on uh, politics or sports or whatever it is would would be quality. Um, now you have everybody flooding every channel with with their thoughts, which is is has its own merits, I suppose, but it makes it very tough to for consumers to find the good stuff and it makes it tough for content creators who are good to make a living um i was wondering if you could comment a little bit on on that
0: yeah you know this this idea that uh, all information should be free i think is is bs because to uh you know to the voice of professionalism will always stand out i think but uh you have to train the readers to Learn what voices are actually professional voices. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, you know there there were there were titans of the of the car magazine world back in the day. People like David D. E. Kelly, who both understood the cars and machinery and also understood storytelling. Um, I think at a certain point, sort of people got caught up in in the specifications, the zero to sixties, these type of things, um, and then it just so much became just sort of biased opinion, you know, this idea that the, the commenter on YouTube had is as much validity as, as the writer. And what's interesting is, you know, I, you get these commenters to say, Oh, well, you know, the Mustang is clearly faster than the Ferrari and you realize they haven't been in either car, you know? Um, it, it's taken me, I've written about cars for almost 20 years now and probably for the first decade, I really didn't know what I was talking about. Um, simply through all those years of of driving the different cars and telling those different stories and meeting the people behind those cars, have I gathered really enough information to, to really understand, yes, what's happening underneath me in a car, those things that you say, Oh, it's a nice ride or it it handles well, what that actually means, but also understanding, you know, how cars evolve and, um, you know, just having, not just having that, that spit reaction to something. Um, I'm all for people who have voices of professionalism who really understand what they're talking about. And when I'm reading a piece of criticism, um, be it film or architecture or art, you know, I'm always looking for those voices. I think the gatekeepers are indeed important. Um, everybody should have an opinion and that's great, but they're not all equal.
1: That's a very diplomatic way to say it, <laughs> To say it. No, I, I think you're right on. Um and now that I think the that gatekeeper concept is reemerging in this way where you have people that are, that have become a force on YouTube. They've, they've built an audience around whatever niche thing they do. You know, they, it could be, um, it could be someone that goes, you know, like there's a lot of YouTube channels now where, it's not unusual to see a high school girl going to the mall, buying some products, bringing them back and unboxing them. Or in the tech world, you've got computer guys that, that review, you know, for example, I was looking for a, um, uh, for a second monitor for one of my office setups and the, the number of YouTube reviews just of, ultra wide 21 by nine computer monitors is more than you can sit through in an hour. It's it's unbelievable. And, and that's just one tiny fraction of the hardware spectrum of products that's out there. It's, it really's amazing. And some of them, you know, they're multi-camera, they're, they're, they look like they're professionally shot, even <laughs> though it's DIY. Cause the, the, the camera gear is, is less expensive now. And, uh, they're edited. There's a soundtrack. It's a whole. It's a whole thing. Um, but there will be one person in that space that sort of rises to the top, and then they will become sort of an opinion maker in their own way, just on a very limited, you know, on a limited thing. Scale, yeah. I mean, how how do you how do you sort of navigate those forces with with your subject matter?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. And, and the problem is, is, you know, how do you make a living doing these things as a, as a 20 year old? Um, I moved to New York 20 years ago to start at magazines, which I did. And I did that traditional thing. You would have seen, um, you know, the idea of the bonfire, of the vanities world up to sort of, um, uh, what was the movie about the Vogue sort of the, 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 the devil wears product that, mm-hmm. you know, that all existed in New York in the late nineties and early two thousands. And it's kind of a brutal world, but the interesting thing is it also allows you to, you know, start at the bottom and be paid maybe enough marginally enough to actually live and be taught by people who knew more than you, you know, to, to learn things about fact checking and research and copy editing and, and the art of editing, um, and telling the story. Well, Um, unfortunately these days, so much of that support system no longer exists, right? So uh, at the car magazines, for instance, there's still many of them are still in Michigan. They still actually have some of this. Some of the young guys come in. Often, they're often they are from Michigan, and they start at a low level job, and they're they're learning. But those jobs are fewer uh, around anymore. There's fewer of those jobs around. So, how do you exist from you know a 22 year old who's just graduated from college into somebody? in their 30s or 40s who's got that voice of authority. And that's the problem is um, having worked at uh, some of the big media companies in New York City these days, they just shed those people with the experience. You know, they're the high paid people that have been there 20 years um, and they're getting rid of those people. And those are the people who bring on the next generation. So wherein I'm sort of the last generation who was brought up by that system and have certainly Um, continue to really benefit from it. I probably have five or 10 editors through the years from working at a newspaper uh, in my hometown, all the way to, to working at big media companies in the, in the New York. Um, I'm that last generation to really benefit from that old school way of doing things. Um, You know, you're, you're paying being paid $200 a post for a three day trip that you've taken to assess a car. I don't know how you make a living doing that. So, the problem is as we eventually swing back around to hey we want people who know what they're talking about um i'm not sure if those people are going to exist in a sense and i think that's not just true for card journalism or journalism in general but so many of these informational jobs
1: that's yeah that's an interesting point as to how it how it potentially affects other um you know other businesses i mean for for what I do from, I have like 18 jobs, but the the main one, uh, I'm a, I'm a solo lawyer. So technology has enabled me to not have a receptionist, to not have a file clerk. I can do everything electronically. I can file things in a court over the web. I don't have to, you know, 10, even 10 years ago, you would have to have at least a courier or a runner to take physically, to take things from A to B and then, and then file something or deliver something to someone else, and in in you know my day job, which is completely unrelated to what we've been talking about, um, a similar thing is happening because I a lot of people that are of my age, Generation X, uh, and maybe the next generation down, tend to not want to work for they you know we tend to want to work for ourselves as much as possible. I think and. You know, I'm I'm not training anybody behind. You know, I don't have mm-hmm. any young students that that work for me. So um, it'll be interesting. I think the entire economy is going to go through a, a big upheaval in the next five years, but that's a conversation probably for, <laughs> for another time.
0: So well, there's there's you know there's benefits to it. Um, I mean, the great thing is when I started actually as a newspaper a cub reporter at the Albuquerque journal, you know, we had something called the vault. And if you were reporting on a story, you literally went to, they were, they were cutouts, uh, clippings of the newspaper. You went back and reread, you know, your predecessor's stories. Um, and you would literally file via phone on the road. I would not go back to that day ever again. If, mm-hmm. You know, that was not so fun. Uh, right. literally calling from a pay phone to your editor to report on, you know, whatever happened that night. Um, the beauty of my job these days is is indeed, I'm on the road a lot and can file from wherever I am, which is which is a beautiful thing. So there's certainly good sides and bad sides to the changing world, isn't there?
1: i I think so. I mean, it's it, it if you can be one of the people which which you are, if you can be one of those that evolves with the times, then then it's then it's terrific, I guess.
0: Um, well, it's interesting. So I've started this. Uh, I've always been a very visual writer. I I, I think in images. Um, and so, sort of moving, um, I've been in front of the camera a lot over the last ten years. Sort of moving behind the camera, so to speak, has been interesting because there are a lot of parallels. And I teamed up with a partner who's done sort of had a similar career in the film and video world as I have in sort of the writing world. He's a master of what he does. He understands all his equipment. He understands all the sort of philosophies to make things look beautiful. Um, and I've always been a writer who the words are important to me. You know, the building blocks are, are often as important as what you're trying to convey. Um, and it's allowed me – he and I partnering and being able to just shoot something together, it's allowed me to not have to learn all his building blocks because I can relay, re- rely on him to right. use the right camera and, and have the guys that know. And then I can say, look, I would love this to look this way. Here's the feeling I want to convey. And he says, oh, well, we need so-and-so lights. I don't have to learn those things. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting right. is that, well, that degree of professionalism is still – Every bit is important and working for the companies, they want it to look just as beautiful because we've been trained by so many years of visual media to expect things to look great. So again, if, if I'd come in as a 20 year old and just wanted to, you know, shoot my own car videos, they don't look, you still need all that experience behind it to learn. And, um, you know, things like insurance and these things that, you know, when you're just doing things on your own, um, trying to figure it out, you know, the, the big companies want you to have you know, all the, all those backstops that are still necessary in the legal world Mm -hmm. to, to make something. So, you know, Hey, experience still matters.
1: Now with your, with your work on the production side, are you producing video content under your own label or are you doing this for, for manufacturers or who, how does, how does that work?
0: We've shot for um, we've shot for editorial for things like Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated, but we are also now shooting for the OEMs directly. So um, we've shot for Audi, we've shot for Bentley, we have shot for McLaren, some of these big luxury niche brands. Um, but what we're, we're still trying to do is tell a story. Um, they look editorial; they're not actually native, but they are these things that you could show a car moving beautifully in an interesting place, um, and convey something about that product. So yeah, we are showing now for OEMs, which has changed. It's changing. And they're showing up on places like social media, you know, so there's those things you click on that look interesting and tell a fun story. Um, but they still are informed with a sort of editorial point of view, if you will. Um, I don't want to, you know, a traditional commercial isn't very interesting. I don't think, um, it's just not that fun. So a two minute video, I can convey a whole idea, like a mini film that I think people are interested in seeing in the way that, you know, a traditional 32nd spot that is clearly just a, you know, commercial, um, isn't, um, and that is the way the industry is moving towards. And that includes all the major media companies themselves, Nast and time and Hearst. They're producing, videos or content from the the companies directly as well, because those traditional ad dollars aren't working the way they used to be. So it's a shift in the way we approach things.
1: The kind of content you're describing seems to me, when I'm on Twitter, or when I'm on Instagram, or, you know, any of the social media outlets in particular, you know, I see this content that straddles, it's not really, it doesn't really look like a commercial necessarily. Um, But there is this other component to it. It might be a little bit longer in terms of, you know, it's not a 15 or a 30 second, um, you know, spot explicitly to sell, you know, the the latest, you know, uh, the Audi A4, you know, the 2017 model or whatever it is. Um, How did you, when did you first start realizing you had to evolve into becoming a video content Producer, how did how did that happen?
0: Well, it's interesting. It really, it was uh, the disappearing dollars on the side of the magazines to actually pay you know me and my colleagues what we're worth. Um, I was asked ever more to appear on video or on TV shows on the other side of the camera, which is great fun. I love to do, but wasn't actually being paid more for it. There became an expectation that not only were you expected to show up at Someplace, drive a car, uh, write about the car later, but also, you know, produce social media for this company and also, um, you know, kind of run video. And through that process, I started learning about the actual production process. And you realize, um, to your point, Brian, that, you know, as this sort of freelance world or contract world, um, you do become your own company. So why exactly? Would, are you plug and play for somebody else's company when, in fact, I know more about it than than most of people on the masthead? You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's funny because the especially in the car world, you tend to find the people who are, are shooting the car videos. If they are actual car guys, you know, you get a lot of good information, but the videos look terrible. And if it's usually shot by somebody who's not in the car world, often the videos are beautiful, but they're wrong. So my idea was basically combine the two worlds. I know how the cars should look, how they actually sound, how they actually perform. And going back to a little bit about that idea of I want to show what it's actually like to be inside the cars. The medium works really well. So um, our idea is let's make them look beautiful as they would in any great commercial, but actually have the information behind it that you know the only insider really can convey. Um, and I want it to be visceral and emotional. Hey, cars are fun. And and the reason I got into cars specifically was, you know, they are, they're a wonderful. They, they allow you to go on adventures. They're often beautiful. They attract other people who want to come and talk to you about them. Anytime I'm in a great car traveling, I meet people on the road because people approach you from all walks of life and want to talk cars. Um, cars are more than just something to sell. They're more than something – something that's just conveyed from A to B cars are excitement. They're adventures. I have a four year old uh, boy who's loves to get in the back of my cars and, and we drive places and he always knows that we're going to go on an adventure with that. So um, trying to convey that through video is a really nice thing because obviously cars are visual. So it's a nice alignment um, and realizing that why shouldn't I tell those stories rather than, just being plugged into um, somebody else's scenario, right? And it turns out it's really creative and really fun, um, and it is very much a storyteller. I'm a storyteller, and it's it's fun to be able to tell stories through a different medium.
1: Well, I th- I think you're you're absolutely right on on all of that, and and you know cars in American history at least, you know I think have always been a metaphor for freedom or metaphor for. Um, individualism or or you know muscularity and in in another uh in another way um when so are you still you're still producing written content though aside from the video production work you're still working as a columnist
0: indeed yes i write for a variety of publications um i am a uh contributing editor at road and track, which is one of those old and storied magazines that still really believes in great writing, long features, um, and beautiful photography. So it's a, it's a great joy to get to write for a magazine like that because so many of the Titans of the industry have written for that magazine or work at that magazine. And, um, I get to write 12 or 14 page feature articles, which just doesn't exist anymore. Um, And also, I write for things like The Verge, which is a website that is a tech website, but is always looking towards the future, is always looking to uh, sort of a newer tech savvy audience, but who are also have intense curiosity about the world. Um, And they're, they're an audience that loves cars, and they're just as interested in cars as say you know schoolmates were 25 years ago but they're looking they're no longer buying those magazines like road and track um obviously the automotive world is changing rapidly um but for all of that i think that that elemental idea of what you're talking about brian about freedom and being able to get away and and having that as a uh um, an automobile is part of your personality still exists. And I think it'll exist from five years from now and 10 years from now and 15 years from now, even as the technology and the landscape changes.
1: Yeah. It's, it's uh, the verge is a great website in my, in my opinion. I, I, it has a different, it's definitely in that tech space where you can read product reviews on the latest, you know, anytime Apple has a keynote or uh, Samsung releases the next, Mm -hmm. you know the the next uh smartphone or, or whatever is is happening they're a great resource for that but they're the interesting thing about the verge is that it's also kind of like pushing out into this other subject matter and i think the sensibility of how everything is presented uh really speaks to i mean at least to me and i think obviously the website is, is just went through a big redesign and, and I'm sure their readership is, uh, is, is climbing daily. Um, I mean, it seems to occupy that space that CNET used to.
0: It's, you know, it's interesting to me. It's a culture site in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And as you know, our, our world is both tech. Yeah. Our world is, world is culture, right? So um, I like the idea of approaching cars as culture and tech is also culture because it it informs so much of what we do in our life and i think that site really does that well um and i think that's important you know um we tend to sometimes get so focused on our particular niche that we don't look outside to the other sort of the other things that inform it um and it's funny it's what i've always wanted to do with cars i actually didn't start as a car guy i've always loved travel i've been interested in a variety of things and started as a generalist, um, magazine writer, I wrote all kinds of things. Um, and eventually kind of fell more and more to cars. And what I learned was the more I wrote about cars, the more I ended up writing about everything else as well. Um, because cars inform so much of what we do. You end up, you can interview interesting people in a car. You can go an interesting, on an interesting venture in a car, travel the world in a car that, although it looked like, my world has shrunk. In fact, it hadn't. Um, and tech is culture like that. And, and so are cars.
1: What was your first big break?
0: I uh, came from a small town in New Mexico. One of those classic, uh, you know, New York stories drove out as soon as I graduated from uh university, of New Mexico, which to me it was, is in Albuquerque was a big town at the time and drove out to New York to like, do the whole magazine thing. I waited tables for six months and eventually landed uh, at Vanity Fair, running off photocopies, um, and uh, worked there for about two years, running off photocopies, but eventually amassing more, uh, more and more sort of opportunities and, and jobs. And at the end of that, I ended up working for a men's magazine called Gear Magazine. And it was supposed to be sort of a, it was a bit of a lads magazine, but it was also a pretty erudite publication. It had people like William T. Volman writing for him, um, uh, Brett Easton Ellis. And it was a bit of this idea. It was a European magazine. And uh, and essentially, I got to write, do amazing profiles and uh, do crime stories and At some point, one of the editors said, "Mm, can you write about this car? And I said, I don't really know much about cars, but fine. And it put me on a racetrack. And uh, that day on the racetrack, something ignited. I I was like, it's just visceral. It's emotional. It was fun. It was quite zen in its odd, weird way. And um, that was the start of my car career as well as just also – Having a voice out there in the greater culture that people were listening to, people like would say, oh, I, I'm looking for your articles. Um, and it's great fun. I mean, the great thing about writing or storytelling is it's allowed me to travel the world innumerable times, meeting great people, um, and just living adventures. You know, actually doing the adventures that you have always dreamed about doing, and then having the real luck to go home and tell those stories to a greater audience. It's a great thing storytelling, and I don't think it's going away even as it does evolve
1: What do you think was your sort of watershed um, you know the first car centered piece that you you produced? Do any of those stick out in your mind as you know this is the piece that when I became who I am or as as a as a writer I mean
0: yeah, I've done various pieces through the years that I'm proud of, but about well. Not that long ago, uh, I grew up in—I well, i grew up in New Mexico on a ranch, and it was a truck culture, you know, pickup trucks, and uh, I drove a old GMC pickup that still runs on our ranch today, and um, the new version came out four four years ago, and um, I took my new four year old son to meet his granddad on the ranch where I grew up in the new version of the of that pickup. And and ended up bringing a photographer along and sort of chronicled the old pickup truck, which still runs alongside this new pickup truck, with the idea that pickup trucks are multi-generational. You know, we tell stories through, through our vehicles. Um, and bringing my new son to meet his granddad for the first time and having the old truck there and arriving in the new truck, I sort of allowed me to tell the story about growing up myself – in this pickup culture and the joys of that, you know, sometimes we look at these things as being, um, kind of hokey or, or backwards. Um, and in fact, they aren't, that that's the way we tell stories about our families. And so it was an ability to tell a family multi-generational story through the prism of an automobile. And I won a bunch of awards for the story. People still, still to this day say, Oh, you know, that, that GMC story you wrote was, was such a great story. Um, And to me, that is the perfect car story. You know, yes, I talk about the new truck and and yes, I'm talking, but mostly I'm talking about the memories that, that, that old truck and the adventures with my dad engendered. And my hope is then, you know, 15 years, my son will look back and say, oh, those great, all those years of these great adventures I took with my dad in, in various vehicles really matter. That's the fabric of, of my memories and, and, you know, inform me about these things. So, um, that is probably the piece I'm proudest of as far as, as writing is concerned, because it's you know, it's more than just about a car. It's about things that are heartfelt and true.
1: Was this the same piece um that you wrote where you and your dad were were both in the same truck? I have it on the tip of my tongue and I can't recall, but there was a piece you wrote where you were driving with your dad. He had to go he had to go over a ridge and you were on foot for some reason.
0: Yeah. This actually was this is another my dad and truck story actually but um the one I'm referring to is called is from Automobile magazine i think like it's 4 years old and if you're any interest look at i think Harper GMC and Automobile magazine it'll pop up Yep
1: yeah, we'll uh, we'll link we'll link to that on the uh, on the on your episode web on your episode page uh we we'll, we will link to that
0: Cool yeah it's uh i think it's called Truck Tales T A L E S um but the one you're talking to, Brian, is actually a more recent story where you know, uh, as dads and, and sons do, you battle over things. You know, as as a generationals generations shift, and you know, one takes more control over the other. I still find we do it in the truck <laughs> more often than not.
1: Who were your uh, Who were your influences in terms of writers that you admired early on?
0: Interesting. Uh, Mostly fiction, actually. Um, Funny influences like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, I've always loved lyrical writing, evocative writing. Um, There are a bunch of people within the magazine world that – I used to read old Esquires, those magazines growing up, um, GQ. Some of those writers who would evoke worlds that were so far away from me. Growing up, like I said, in a small town in New Mexico and thinking – you know, the, the greater world seems so very far away. So this idea of a place like New York or, or um, travel, traveling to Everest, um, uh, reading in magazines like the Outside Magazine and GQ and Esquire would bring these worlds to me um, in a really special way. And that, I think, as much as anything, I always wanted to write. I was a little kid who was never wanted to be a firefighter, never wanted to be an astronaut. I always said, I want to be a writer. And I think that came from the storytelling aspect and a love for words. But um, what brought me to the magazines was, again, being a little kid or being a, a young adult and, and saying, wow, there's this amazing world out there that these magazine writers are bringing to me that I'd like to experience myself. Um, and at the point when I realized maybe novels weren't going to be what I wanted to do, but because it was too insular, like I like being out in the world. Um, I like interacting with people. Whereas journalism, and, and I've never been a political writer, that kind of stuff doesn't interest me, or coming or events doesn't interest me, but going out and interacting with the greater world very much does.
1: And I would think writing for, you know, in a more journalistic way, gives you a more, there's more immediacy to it in that you, you know, you're not working on a novel for two years, and then you know, and then you, then it goes out and then there's now you have to tour and support it. Um, it, with, with journalism, you know, you're putting a piece out every, you know, every month something is happening, I would suspect, or on a shorter, even shorter, uh, timeline now when in with the way people consume information, um, where if you can't produce a stream of content, you lose people's,
0: uh, attention,
1: you lose, yeah. you lose your readership. So,
0: It's true. It's nice because it's always changing. I'm headed to Spain and Germany, uh, next week to test drive, um, two different cars, uh, which means that I'm headed to Sevilla to drive, test drive a a Lexus sports car. And after that, I'm actually headed to Germany to drive, um, to actually head with one of the engineers of Audi to get sort of how he approaches his sports cars. Um, and that means, I'll be in Sevilla, sunny Sevilla, on a racetrack. Um, having an experience that's different than today. And then I'll be interacting with this engineer, um, who will also have his own worldview that I'll get into and driving the roads that he drives every day as he's informed about what he sort of wants to create as far as a sports car. Um, which is really cool because those two experiences will be totally different from one another. Um, and, and that is what gives me the dream job. I have. I always say I have every kid's, every like eight year old's dream job, which is to fly around the world and drive fast cars. Um, and but at a certain point, you you got to come home, put your butt in the seat, and actually write them. And that is the other thing. It's there are those thoughtful, slow hours. Um, sometimes the stories come fast, and sometimes they come agonizingly slow. But um, be able to come back and figure out where the story begins and where it ends is also part of that that adventure. Um, sometimes I'll start a, a big, long feature and I can't seem to get there. And then I realize, well, I've started the story in the wrong place. Um, what's fun about the sort of interpretive journalism versus old school covering events. Journalism is that the story, you know, still exists a little bit with you and how you decide to craft it. Um, so it's, it's creative in that way that I also am bringing it to video because You shoot all this video and you say, well, when you're in the editing bay, really the story becomes formed there. It isn't what you shot in the lens as much as what you choose to present as you start and finish that video, um, which exists just like writing um, exists in the editing bay. So that's part of the fun part of the process for me.
1: That echoes the thing of sort of a aphorism that a lot of my video friends in the video production world always say, which is the storytelling is in the editing it's not you know it's not in the in the in the raw footage so um one thing i had been meaning to ask you all this time is you know you're in you're behind the wheel of some fairly high powered hardware so mm-hmm. you you can't take a man you know an average guy or gal off the street and put them in a lamborghini and expect Good results. Good things
0: happen. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. How, how Exactly. How did you gain, you know, how did your experience with with supercars evolve? Because, you you know, you've driven, maybe sort of give us a list of, of, of the exotics that you've had hands-on experience with.
0: Yeah, I've driven, I, in an average year, I probably drive $10 million worth of cars. Um, and it could be everything to old Mazda race cars that have raced in Le Mans, I drove a – several years ago, I wrote, raced an Audi prototype uh, race car that actually won Le Mans, which is – literally looks like a spaceship. It has a steering wheel that's no bigger than a, fris, a Frisbee and had 45 functions on the steering wheel. Um, it's about as divorced from a normal driving experience as you can imagine. Um, you know, uh, Ferraris and Lamborghinis are sort of my – my normal thing versus sort of the exception to the rule, um, so yeah, it, I had to learn how to drive these cars, and it's something I actually take very seriously. Um, and and training, quite simply, there are um, there are different courses, driving courses that are offered by companies like Porsche and um, Audi, and uh, outside companies like Skip Barber. And essentially, you can go for one day, and you have instructors. And they will, you know, show you the basics and like any art or skill, you know, you add first there's big leaps, you know, you really learn how to drive on a racetrack, which is completely different than driving on a, on a street. And then as you get to know the basics, you know, the building blocks become smaller and these little things about car control or letting off the brake in a specific way, or, you know, where your eyes should go all the time. Um, they're great fun skills, um, And very important because otherwise, if I'm trying to describe to you, if I'm describing as a layman to a layman about how it feels to be in a Ferrari is one thing. But if I'm talking to somebody who actually understands the dynamics of a race car, I also want to be able to convey to that person, well, this Ferrari handles differently than that Ferrari and why. So part of that credibility and the professionalism we've been talking about earlier comes from that stuff. And it's very important. And I'm always learning. Um. I drive with professional race car drivers all the time and always take their advice um you know i I always say i'm a, I drive professionally, but I'm not a professional driver um I'm a very good, safe, decently fast driver. I love to be on a racetrack it's my happy place but um you get in with true pros and I'm always wowed. I, I always think I'm driving as fast around in this track as any human being could drive. And then you get into the right-hand seat, and a pro actually gets in and shows you how it could be done. And you go, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay." Um, yep. But but it's important because these companies lend you cars that are worth you know more than houses. And uh, I always want to bring those cars home safely because otherwise they're not going to lend them to you again. So um, you don't want to be that guy. Nope. The day I drove this, you know, this Le Mans winning car that was worth probably twelve million dollars on a racetrack. You know, I said, this could be on my epitaph, which would be, you know, oh, this is the guy that crashed the Le Mans car. You don't want to be that guy. So some of those days are um, you wake up in the morning and think, mm, I'm a little afraid. You go to bed that night and say, I want to do it again. So that's also part of the joy of the career.
1: Not your typical day at the
0: office, for sure. No, it's not a cubicle job, thank God.
1: <laughs> well, Jason, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. And we will post uh, links to your uh, to your website and uh, to the stories that we referred to uh, on creativeconfidential.net. All you have to do is go to Jason's episode page and all the information will be right there. And uh, again, Jason, thanks very much. And uh, I look forward to uh, reading your next piece.
0: Thanks, Brian. Much fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or to book Brian for public speaking engagements or personal coaching sessions, send an email to brian at creativeconfidential.net. That's B-R-Y-A-N at creativeconfidential.net. To get future episodes automatically, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve in social media creation. creation. Steve Mittman, <laughs>